And welcome to the Growth Hacking Podcast. I'm your host, Nemi Sini, joined with my co-host, Stacey Isaac. Say hi, Stace. Hi, everyone. And um, I think we've got something really exciting today. We've got uh, Patrick Collins, who you probably know the brand Zip. Uh, Patrick's been instrumental in growing the Zip brand and the product um, and using experimentation as part of that. So just want to welcome Patrick to the to the show. Patrick, I say hi. Thank you. Hi, Nima. Hi, Stacey. Thanks for having me. Not at all. We're, it's a great pleasure to have you. So you know what? We're going to change it up. I'm going to let Stace drive the first couple of questions. I always hold the, the limelight. It will be difficult, but let's give it a shot. We'll it, give it a go. We'll give it a go. Well, look, I know that um, in the past we did work with you, but and Nima knows you very well, but I don't, I don't know you in the same capacity. So um, just to kick things off, I'd, I'd love to find out a little bit more about your background and, and some of your career highlights. So can you talk to us about, you know, who you are and where you've come from? Sure. Uh, Patrick Collins, currently Chief Product Officer at Zip, who is one of the leading buy now, pay letters in the world, based out of Sydney and listed on the ASX. My background is logically product management, but originally engineering, actually, and mostly over the last 15 years in leadership roles, three of those with my own startups and mostly in Silicon Valley Bay Area where I lived for 12 years. One of those startups was quite successful and I sold that in 2012. That was with Finger, which was a mobile application platform for retailers. And um, and that, that actually got acquired by a data-driven agency called Merkle, who led me into the world of digital experience platforms and experimentation. And I would say that in 2014, 2015 was probably where I really started cutting my teeth on experimentation culture and and um, experimentation methods. But yeah, I joined Zip in 2019. Zip's a two-sided marketplace. So we have to kind of attract consumers and merchants both to the marketplace and that kind of gets the flywheel spinning. And I would say when I first joined Zip, there was very little culture of experimentation at all. In fact, there was very little culture of product management. It was really like the founder telling the product managers what to do and the product managers were project managers and like going and getting it done. And that actually works up to a certain point. In fact, most startups, when you really dig under the hood, um, that's how it mostly works. But when you really need to scale it, you've got to get that entrepreneurialism pushed down into the team. And in fact, I hired New Republic, Nima, to kickstart that process, if you recall. And we brought Optimizely in. And we started with, I think, really just it was a simple program. We were starting with the low-tech funnels, you know, the zip.co website, and the front-end lead funnels leading to our acquisition funnels. Uh, and that kick-started, I think we stopped working with each other shortly after that, but that kick-started like an entire drive of kind of an experimentation culture over the subsequent two years. Yeah. That's you great. had experimentation experience before Zip, correct? Interestingly, I'd actually had to build it into the platforms. I was making platform, I was a B2B company. So we were building the platforms that other companies would use for their digital experiences. So we were building A-B testing platforms. This is Fifth Finger? Yeah, Fifth Finger and then subsequently MoveWeb, which was another digital experience platform as well. It's funny, I didn't know you were, I used to I used to work with Fifth Finger when I was at BMC Media. So like when I saw that, I'm like, I know Fifth Finger. I didn't know Pat was involved in that. Gosh, That's an amazing know. business because you guys did um, all the SMS voting for Big Brother, right? In the early days. That's right, yeah. We were, early, I mean, early days. 
early days of, of when, when mobile meant SMS and yeah, mobile marketing yeah, meant SMS marketing. Yeah. So we, so, uh, yeah, so I was CEO and founder of that until 2012 when we sold it in the US. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Great story. And so can you tell us about how you implemented experimentation? It sounded like, you know, it was a, it was a new concept at Zip. So how did that go? Yeah. It's been a learning curve. I'd say we're on the journey of being a truly data-led company, we're probably halfway along it, if I'm really honest with myself, probably a lot further along than, than many companies. Yeah, it's true. Zips are, you know, quite unique. It's it's a contemporary product organization where the product teams are independent. Um, there's 18 of them uh, and they're organized. No real boss, product manager, engineering manager, product designer. And in the last year, we've added in product marketing managers and data analysts into the teams as well. They all report up into their functional leadership areas, but they all squad together. And those 18 independent product teams ship about 5,000 times a month collectively. Wow. wow. And so what I've been trying to orchestrate with my peer who runs our data group is embedding A-B testing and experimentation culture within the teams themselves, with the PM and the data analyst in the teams themselves. And we've logically started with the areas that make the most sense that most people start with, which is the funnels. Where, what, you, know, you look at any product, there's normally the, the places that you're going to start are, the, are the, the traditional funnels. So the acquisition funnel, checkout funnels, and maybe the website themselves. And indeed, in our case, they're the ones that are the most mature. And I can talk a little later about where it gets really hard, which is on when you're trying to drive engagement and any lever that you push on like negatively or positively impacts other levers as well. It's like, all right, let's push this lever and then all these other levers shift and you go, oh, that was hard to test. So we can come back to that in a minute. But where we started was um, you got a simple acquisition funnel, like 10 steps maybe with some exceptions through the steps. That's kind of a good place to start is making experimentation culture just BAU, business as usual for those teams, and uh, it just kind of driving that discipline. And in that instance, we actually... Can you go back a bit? I think one of the things I'm really curious on is like, you know, in the conversations I've had with you just working together, like it, you you said some stuff like I was building these augment, like, you know, machine learning and like I was like blown away with some of the stuff you were saying. And I, I know a lot of companies, there was one company in particular I was talking to, they're like, you know, companies like Zip would have a experimentation culture. I'm like, no, actually they didn't. We were coming in to instigate and start that. When you came in and you brought that mindset into the business, because you engaged us knowing what you're buying, you didn't engage us going, I don't know what these guys do, let's just give them some money. When you engaged us to come in, like you already had a mindset around how experimentation and product teams, and you're in an organization that should already have this in place. What were the challenges in from a top level bringing that kind of thinking into the business? Like, did it shift how many units you were shipping out each month? Did it did it have like cultural clashes? Like, what were some of the challenges of bringing it down into the business? Or there wasn't any? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Changing the culture of any company is pretty challenging and takes years, which is why I acknowledged earlier that we're probably halfway along the journey. And I think that the biggest challenge has actually come from the questions that leadership asks the teams. And so if you can get the leadership to start changing the questions they're asking the teams, then you start to, to drive the right questions and behavior out of the teams as well. Yeah. And so we are at a point now, and I'm proud when we're sitting in exec meetings and the executives are like, how did that test? Or how did that test go that we were talking about two weeks ago? Hey. And rather than like, did my pet feature get into production? Yeah. Um, which is the more common kind of refrain that you'll get from executive sponsors. So I think that's one of the big ones is, is changing that dialogue uh, with the executive team, being comfortable that a test would fail. And I think we're at a point now where we're trying to 
figure out how to increase the velocity of tests as well. As I said, we're shipping probably 5,000 times a month across all the teams. At any point in time, we've only got probably 40 tests running, uh, which for some organizations might sound like a lot, but with 5,000 ships a month, it probably should be in the 500 mark yeah. right about now. So I feel like we're kind of, you know, each team, if there's 18 of them, should have at least 50 tests live at any point in time. And they've probably got, you know, sporadically a few each. And so... Uh, and in some cases, none. So that's that's probably the big the big driver. And and actually, our biggest challenge there is not tooling, infrastructure, culture. It's actually the data that sits and the data systems that we're working with and the quality of those. And so that's what we're working on right now. How did you tell a, a, a very active CEO that that test lost and it, it cost us X many customers? Like that's a that's a pretty shitty conversation to be on the opposite end of, right? Fortunately, Larry's very, Larry's the CEO of Zip. He's very um, very appreciative of a data-driven culture and he really aspires to that as well. So we're aligned in that regard. Yeah. It doesn't stop him flicking an idea a minute across email to every product manager that's willing to listen. And we love that about him. Yeah. I think what, what we're learning how to do, and it is part of an experimentation culture, although probably not in the kind of traditional A-B testing sense, is how to validate ideas early and yeah. using other techniques for experimentation in the design process for testing hypotheses really early and really quickly. So our, our dream is to be able to say, hey, caught that email two days ago. Two days ago, thank you. I just validated it. It doesn't seem like something that will resonate with customers. Or it does seem like something we're gonna that's resonating with customers. We're gonna take it to the next step in the next in the yeah. next planning cycle. Yeah. And so that's kind of our is our ideal is that we can, you know, we have kind of a machine that can filter ideas quickly. It's not that hard to imagine building an experimentation machine that can filter ideas. Yeah. But can you do it quickly? That's probably the bigger challenge. You know, I think uh we're doing a good job. We've, we've done multiple major product launches over the last year, for instance. Each one of them have gone live with tests in place and and um, and every funnel that is in business as usual mode is in, in constant testing as well. And it's just something that we review. We review it every month together as a leadership. Are you using the program? It's interesting you said BAU. Like there's a lot of companies I'm talking to. There's two bits to my question again. Okay? There's a lot of companies I'm talking to, they they have like this experimentation program, which is all about defining the new. So take what I have, break it apart, test it, give me something better. And then there's some that follow through with this kind of, hey, I've defined the new experience, now go ahead and optimize it. How, how did you at Zip organize the product teams around that? Or is that something they just kind of figured out themselves and did it themselves? Interesting. I I would imagine that beginners to this problem envisage it as a program at Zip. And at the point of the journey we're at now, it's about how do we design the teams, their competencies, their skills, the questions we ask them, and, and less about some kind of external program. Mm. But to answer your question, I think I think of experimentation through the lens of three different ways of, of approaching a product problem. So the first one is juicing an experience which is the very traditional one, the very traditional A-B testing. Mm. How do we juice this for more results? You know, if there's an untested funnel, we all know that you could probably juice it for 30%, maybe 50% if, you yeah. know, if you just apply um, a program of work to it and growth hack it, button test it, copy test it to do whatever needs to be done. Yeah. And in fact, when we first started working with you, that was what we started doing was kind of juicing an experience. The yeah. second kind of, which requires a different set of skills, is major is major upgrades. For instance, we're doing a, a yeah, we're doing a big rebuild of the Zip app right now, the Zip mobile yeah. app. Yeah. How do you approach that? It's for a product that exists. The, the third one is going to be building new new products, for instance. But so we're we're rebuilding the existing app. 
And the way we are approaching this is still with an experimentation mindset, but we're, um, we're breaking it down into bite-sized chunks. So we start with a hypothesis of what we want to do and we test every single chunk of it independently. So the Zip app rebuild that's happening right now has been going on for four months and will continue to go on for another four months and no consumer will figure out that there's a Zip app rebuild. But if you happen to open the app four months later, it'll be like, it's a totally new app. Amazing. And so we decided quite consciously not to go for a big bang rebuild on the app. In fact, we've designed it so that we've got multiple teams working on their different chunks and they're each independently testing their different areas, testing their own hypotheses. And once we've completed that, we'll go back and we'll retest the actual initial user experience architecture as well that we had. So that's the second kind is like a major upgrade to something that exists. And then the third kind is building something completely new, like a new product line. Uh, Where testing and experimentation culture is still valid, but requires a lot more homework and research on the part of the product manager and the team. So that's in the form of really early learning tests, product types with customers. This is where vision matters a lot. Mm. And even if you do decide to build something, you want to experiment with the most minimal version of it first, which could start with painted door tests. It's a funny story. We did a painted door test for a new feature. So we launched this product last year called Tap and Zip, which was the ability to use, you know, like PayWave. Yeah. To, to use to, to purchase a product with Buy Now Pay Later, which uh, sounds fairly straightforward. But when you think about the way Buy Now Pay Later works, it was quite a challenge to get it working economically. And uh, when we first started envisaging that, we, we were like, well, can we charge more for this? And so we built a painted door test, which for those who don't know, is, is basically just a, a screen that says, if you're interested in this feature, apply now or click here to, to learn more. And so it's a, it's a painted door and you click through to it, we're registered for interest. Yeah. And we've built a few different painted doors and we, have, we sent it out to 10,000 users each. The goal was actually to see uh, how people would click differently with different price points. Lo and behold, the laws of supply and demand held very firmly and the more we charged for it, the less people clicked on it. Yeah, but right. what was interesting, and I, this was my big first lesson on painted door tests at Zip, was we ended up in hot copper. You know, Zip's an ASX listed company. And so there were all these pundits on hot copper going, these pundits on hot copper going, Zip are launching a credit card. And it was funny because our our chief marketing officer, um, Steve Brennan, who you knew and who introduced us together, he's, you know, he's very focused on PR. He's like, mate, (laughs) a painted door test is not a good idea. I'm like, no, no, it's fine. It's going to only be 10,000 people and we're just going to put it to people in Perth. Sure enough, some share trader in Perth picked it up and put it on hot copper. Ah. Anyway, so <laughs> the cat was out of the bag. So I did need to think harder about We didn't stop doing painted door tests. We just needed to be more clever about how we put them out there. And, Such and a good case study. Them. That is yeah, so yeah. brilliant. And so, but it did end up in a position where we launched that Tap and Zip program without a fee change increase because... Uh, there was a there was an internal hypothesis that people wanted it so much that the the demand would outstrip the the change in fee and that wasn't actually yeah um, that actually wasn't true so yeah those are the I guess the three big areas that we think about is just kind of juicing an existing funnel big major upgrades like the app rebuild or a completely new feature like tap and zip and we approach them all very differently with different kinds of experimentation culture yeah it's oh, great it's a very mature way of approaching it, isn't it yeah hundred percent we have clients you know we're building websites is you know or, or not so much clients but we've worked with people or spoken to people who still want to do that traditional um, website 
build design and and product build and and hearing you talk it's just a a much more mature and innovative way to um, test it you know incrementally and launch it and then and know that things are actually working before you go into a huge you know different build Mm. again all right three (laughs) yeah i think i think that came probably not just from my experimentation approach but also just my i guess my experience with large projects i I don't like large projects at all and so whenever I face a large project, I try to figure out how to break it down into lots of small projects. Mm. The, the, the obvious downside to that is, is that there's never any big release moments. It's just... There's no ta-da moments. There's yeah. no ta-da moments. It's just all a series of thousands of releases. But you know what, Pat? That's what, what you're saying really resonates because for a lifetime we've been talking about how this concept of the big reveal is dead. That concept of plan, 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 design, design, build, build. And then there's that magical bucket called phase two where mm. you know, pigs fly and unicorns live <laughs> and it never happens. Mm. And so it's, I love that what you talked about, the app, how you have this always on experimentation and 12 months later, what was and what is is completely different. And that's, yeah. the, kind of, that's the kind of thing that we're trying to get all organisations to think about is the way, this idea of, Constant productionization is better than this delayed perfection that everybody strives for, which just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, I think that's probably more how probably more how a lot of companies are organized. I mean, most most companies are organized around projects, not products. So yeah, when when you're organized around a project structure, everything looks like a project, and yeah. you're going to resource things like a project. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you organize around the customer journey, like we have, we have other problems as well. But one of the things that we get is a, a team focused on that part of the customer journey and how to optimize that. And we try to empower them to say, "Here's the metrics you need to focus on and what your goals are. You just need to tell us every quarter what you're working on. We're going to." Change challenge you on that of course but ultimately it's it's your call so the idea of me coming in with this big project overlay and say none of that matters we're going to do this totally different thing yeah. just doesn't doesn't really sit in that world so those 18 product teams that i talked about they all own a chunk of, of the customer experience how did you manage the clash man like you got a big global business you got stuff happening overseas stuff happening. i mean there must be people doubling up doing the same shit that they've done before and how did you manage that you know, different product teams coming together and sharing experiences and knowledge and and not kind of clashing into each other as well. Some of the companies that we've been acquiring overseas are still largely independent and, and some of them we're, we're deeply integrating. There's a concept in product organizations of having platform services teams and then product teams. And so where, where possible, we're trying to organize around platform service teams and build common infrastructure, for instance. So we've got one you know, customer login and, and customer data and centralizing customer data and that kind of thing. So they're, they're probably, while they're not as sexy from a user experience and experimentation standpoint, from an infrastructure standpoint, very critical. And in fact, yeah. if you were to go look at Uber, you know, that they're probably 40% of their teams are infrastructure teams that are really just there providing infrastructure to and in the form of microservices to all of the other, yeah, right, to all of the other product teams. So that's one of the ways that we can help to mitigate that. But but underneath your question there is how do you organize all these product teams to to work together? Exactly. I guess that's that's my job, and that's where it's hard actually. Is if all these teams are independently doing their own things, why do you even need leadership and product and a CPO? Well, I guess um, me and, the, and my product design director, we focus a lot on looking at the overarching customer journey and seeing where people are missing a trick. I'll give you an example. Our acquisition team are very focused on people who land. We've done this together. Do you remember 
So you click the apply now button. <laughs> Most companies, the apply now button is the start. Yeah, of the, it's gone, the right? It's the beginning of everything. Yeah. It's the start of the acquisition funnel. Until the moment they become a customer, that's the end of the acquisition funnel. Most companies, that's the case. Yep. And what me and the product design director figured out is actually, if you stop the acquisition funnel at that point, when they become a customer, we have a blind spot. And the blind spot is that you can make decisions that optimize that, but then they don't become a good customer. Yeah. For instance, I can sign somebody up and not tell them what the price of the product is mm. until I sign get up. the first bill. Yeah. And then I'm a very unhappy customer and my retention is shit and my engagement is shit. Yeah. So if I'm metric, if the team has got the wrong metrics or focused on the wrong metrics or they don't have secondary metrics that we're focused on as well, especially the ones that might be lagging metrics, like that might take three months to kick in, we, we can create blind spots. So my job is to try to make sure that they, they all fit together in a cohesive whole and there is an overarching program of data that pulls all together as yeah. well. And, and help them straighten out the dependencies between them as well. Because one team wants to do this team thing and they've got a dependency on that team and they want to do something different and trying to help broker those kinds of challenges. But yeah, in that instance, we, we literally have that problem right now. We have an acquisition funnel that is optimized to push crappy customers through the funnel at any yeah. regard. And yeah. I don't mean crappy as in like bad paying, like they just, they don't know exactly what they're getting. Yeah. And we're not, and so... We made a principled call because one of our, our primary principles at SIP is transparency and being fair and honest of bringing all the pricing as much as possible up front into the sign-up funnel. And it actually reduced the conversion rate through the funnel. But if you choose another metric, which is the number of customers who get to the first transaction, that metric went way through the roof. And that's after the acquisition funnel. Yeah. So that's just one of the challenges of myopically A-B testing, just a, a segment of the overall customer experience, not the end-to-end -end customer that's experience. That's superbly interesting, bro. That's so different because, you know, a lot of experimentation programs, the product teams own the metrics, where what you've done is you own the process of experimentation, the idea, but the metric of what I see as value is held at that global level that's then pushed down to the team to answer to that. I think that is a really unique and interesting approach. That's a very good yeah. as well as so, But they are responsible for outcomes. Yeah, they're responsible for outcomes on metrics, though, not, not necessarily outcomes on features. And you're, so, you're honing in on what's important as a metric. You're, like, you're going, listen, I, I know you can get me heaps of customers, but I need that first transaction. Like, there's a lot of businesses that they think about that the conversion, the business, the marketing team thinks about the conversion metric. But the business actually worries about where they really make the revenue is that transaction, right? Right. And that's, right. That's, a, that's a unique approach because in modern, most of the experimentation programs that we're involved in, they really focus on just that, the, the team working on focus on that initial, that I guess that, you know, that kind of initial click, which the is the sugar conversion. head. Yeah, yeah the, the sugar, sugar head, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I was looking for. Whereas what mm -hmm. you're doing is you're getting that global view that has that you've got that helicopter view of what the program should be and you're diving mm. back into the teams to then guide what their metric they should be striving for right yep yeah, yeah. And, and metrics and people will will hang on to metrics slightly even leadership team you know we had the, we had in that particular case in that acquisition funnel the, for years i mean for six years the leadership team have been focused on this one set of metrics around the acquisition funnel it's been very difficult to dislodge that metric from being the primary way of measuring customer acquisition interesting it's a great mm -hmm. insight that sounds like you've got a pretty mature program internally so how have you built that it feels like it's quite large scale it doesn't sound accidental it's funny it, it doesn't i guess we're um we're our 
own words as critics, I think we still feel pretty immature on it all for the, for the reasons I said early. We, you know, we, we, our data systems are going through a big upgrade right now. Um, we're just getting to the point now we're embedding data analysts in the teams. I'm really excited about that. The product management role is a really hard role and they have dozens of stakeholders to, to manage. They have customer interviews they need to meet with. They need to work with the team on the backlog. It's an incredibly challenging job and experimentation, as you know, is quite time consuming. You need to sweat the details. It's hard work and they need to constantly track it. And so having a data analyst on the team and putting and embedding them onto the team is, is something that I'm, I'm particularly excited about. It, it sounds about. like you're looking at the next level, which is that value sizing. If I was going to run 50 experiments, 20 of those are going to be the most valuable. Which 20 should I should be shipping first, right? Is that where you're striving with the data analyst? Uh, the data analysts have got multiple roles. I mean, they're, they're generalists, so they, they can help build machine learning and, and models. They can also help answer that. They're actually joining the team meetings. So they're not really there to just build reports. Uh, they're joining the team meetings and they're helping answer the questions. Like, what's the question we're trying to answer? And so yeah. whatever tool they need to use to answer the question, they, they help to do that. They help frame the experiments to work with the product manager to frame the experiments. I don't know, we're, we're still early on it. Like, we've just hired Avinash and we've hired a couple of data analysts onto the team. We've had data analysts before, but they've been a central function. We've had a central data team for, for years. And it's been very helpful for us. We're quite mature on the data side, but it's, you know, when it's separated as, a, as another silo, you know, I've got to get out of my seat to go talk to. Whereas if, if it's on the team and they're just joining the standups every, every day and they're just part of the team, like the product marketing managers are, they just, they're like a business and their own business that these teams just operate like their own business asking yeah. all the right questions every day. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that change. It's one of the big maturity shifts we need to get through. And then I think the, uh, the other change is more around experimentation skill. No, it's like you've got this big hammer, right? Which is like baby testing and everyone wants to use it all the time. Yeah. And my controversial point of view, I guess, is that I think uh, once you get to a level of maturity on, on experimentation and A-B testing, you realize that it can really lay, it can really drive very lazy product management. Yeah. A great, especially for new stuff. So I, I guess I've, I look back on all the, all the product managers I've worked with over my career and all the ones who've built really groundbreaking products. They're often not the ones who are great at experimentation, to be honest. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're not good at it. It's just that it's not their primary focus. And they do do it, but they're better at synthesizing the dots. So they I find great product designers about this combination of really diligent homework, very brave thinking, dissecting that down into very small manageable parts that you can build quickly and, and get that out the door quickly. Yep. And I find lazy product management is weak research, idea formation based on these kind of eureka moments or some, you know, founder says to me, it's a great idea, let's do that. And then we spend a couple of months building something. Then we launch it with a feature flag to a chunk of customers and we call that experimentation. Mm. I find yeah. that's lazy because yeah. you're not really thinking through the problem, synthesizing it, talking to customers early. As you know, the second we've built the code, and even if you're going to A-B test it, the minute you have to write the code, it's very, very slow. Yeah. So anything you can do to synthesize the information up front, talk to customers yeah. up front, that's, that's where I'm trying to drive our experimentation culture now is maybe don't build it. <laughs> maybe find other ways of testing it before yeah. we build it. And yeah. of course, we're going to test it when you do build it. But if it's wrong, 
there's some element of celebrating the fact that we've tested it and we didn't put something in the customer's hands that didn't work. But also, like, were you lazy? Like, could you have figured it out more? I, I think, Pat, you know, the thing that I always say is, like, when we're, when we're talking to clients, when we're starting clients, people see A-B testing, experimentation, whatever you want to call it, they see it as a, as a hammer and every mm. problem just becomes an A-B test, right? And they just, mm. they love doing it, like, shit, more yeah. data. And they get addicted to the data rush, right? You get this mm. insight, you're like, wow, that's really interesting. But, you know, the one thing we always try to tell people, and, and you know, I, I feel like you're echoing the same point, is if you don't know what problem you're solving, then just doing random A-B tests is just as pointless mm. as just not testing at all, right? Yeah. And I find the companies that become very mature in this space are the ones that understand A-B testing is just a method of validating design. If you don't do your research, that traditional stuff to identify what is the problem I'm trying to solve in this customer journey, yeah. to really hone in on the problem, the A-B test is nothing more than a validation point yeah. for that research and that design that you've done. So I agree yeah. with you. I, I don't think A-B test is the beginning of the journey. I think A-B test is like the end or the midway of the journey, but you have to first figure out what's the problem. And that comes from and I, you know, talk to a customer. The best yep. place to figure out what you need to design for, listen to a call center. Go on mm. the chat logs and chat to customers. Once you find that that real honest truth, which is what your design is really trying to represent, yeah, then go validate that and get the quantifiable how many other people agree with this thing that I found, right? But running yep. into an A-B test with zero insights, I, I agree with you. I think it's a waste of everyone's time. It pisses customers off because... In those losing experiments, there are customers who are telling you to fuck off. I don't like this. Right. Right. right? What's the point yeah. of that? Exactly. I, I totally hear your point. I think it's a really fantastic point to make. I agree. Yeah. So so I talk a lot with product managers. And I, I think if you were to read, if you'll pick up any product management book, uh, it's about the craft of product management. The word experimentation and testing is used at least five times in every single sentence. Right. And so as a result, every product manager you meet, that they're going to like just effusively talk about this, but very few truly get that it's really about really hard thinking, being quite humble and doing as much research as possible and connecting those dots together really quickly. Yeah. Um, at, at least for new products. What I was most excited about, if I can change topics quickly, was we look, we really, we relaunched our checkout recently. But by the way, at Zip, checkout means uh, on a merchant's website, like uh, let's say Kogan, and you yeah. choose Zip, checkout with Zip just like check out with PayPal, check out with Afterpay, check out with Zip, then that's our checkout funnel. And uh, now we had some technical challenges in there. And for mostly for architectural reasons, we needed to rebuild it. And we got it out the door iteratively. But what I was most excited about when we kind of finally got it out the door and started getting results through it, and the results were great. The conversion rate improved dramatically just as a result of fixing poor experience. That was before, that was we got to the starting line of testing. Like we improved the conversion rate by 10% or something, just got things, getting to the starting line. And then because the metrics were so clear that the team that needed to hit in terms of, and, and it's just such an obvious, like improve the conversion rate. It's such an easy and obvious metric to see. Yeah. The engineering team, the product manager was hands off. The engineering team were just going for it. So it was five engineers on the team waking up every morning with their, with their cereal, looking at the results and then fixing bugs while they're eating their cereal. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, it's just a stark contrast to most engineering teams you work with who focus yeah. on a different set of problems, scalability yeah. or whatever it is. And so there's this magic spot when you can see an engineering team leading the experimentation culture themselves and the product managers in autopilot, like, great stuff. I'm going to go work on the next problem. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a perfect scenario to be yeah. in. But that's, I got to tell you, where I, I think most companies are very far away from that. Like, 
engineering okay. teams yeah. running experiments, that's yeah. like <laughs> blow your mind yeah. kind of thinking. <laughs> Which is where it belongs, it, right? It's, it's it, truly it, it where totally it totally belongs. Been. If you can get the engineering team to own that, focused on that problem. Totally. And, and when you can get the engineering team to truly care about the results of the problem that they're trying to, to solve and get them hooked on that and addicted to that, it's very powerful because yeah. they they get excited and start implementing it themselves as well. It, and in contrast to the average engineering team who just tend to be focused on principal engineering problems, this needs to be more scalable. I need to make this more scalable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, which you know arguably helps if you really are at scale. But if you're not, if you don't have scalability problems, you're you're kind of gold plating something that may not need to be gold plated. Yeah. And as more product teams are getting into experimentation, what, what would one piece of advice be for them? Do you think having worked with the engineers and the product teams? Engineers as experimentation, people. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think that's a great endpoint. Um, getting into it, I think. Um, Pat, let me preface this. You've got a lot of people who are very excited, me included, by some of the stuff you're saying. Right. And they're going to go off and they're going to go all of their developers and go, right, you're all testing from now on. <laughs> we both know that's a recipe for disaster. What would be some stepping stones? Like, you know, you talked about you got an amazing CEO in Larry who's, you know, super energetic. You've got to manage those expectations. You've got people doing their day jobs who are now taking on. Like, what are the stepping stones that you tell them to, to adopt? Yeah, I think um, so. If you have a separate data team now, I'm going to assume we're talking to scaled companies. Uh, yeah, just course, just yeah. for the illustration here, um, try to get those analysts embedded into the team. And if you don't have analysts now, get them and get them into the teams. I think it's probably the single earliest thing you can do to drive results. I'm a big believer in get smart people in a room, mm -hmm. set the metrics right, and make sure they got the right skills and get out of their way. And I think without an analyst on a team, unless the product manager or the engineer or the engineering manager is really skilled with data, uh, you're, you're kind of operating with one hand tied behind your back. It would be like trying to build a product without having a product designer around. So I, I think that's probably the best one. It also prevents kind of seagull growth PMs coming in. I've, I've never been a big believer in um, growth PMs, like seagulls from the outside, like, ah, come in, they shit on everything, tell you you're doing everything wrong, and then uh, and then fly away again. Like, I'm just, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm, as you can tell, I'm not a big believer in growth team. I just feel like every product team needs to be a growth team. So you know, if you can, I, I, you're a believer in growth. You just believe that it's an organic part of what you do it needs to just be part of what you, do. you just it start doesn't... doing and stop doing it's not that. a team yeah it's like yeah. Say, i'm gonna have i'm say, yeah i'm gonna have a uh, a profit team yeah. <laughs> um so yeah i'd say get a data incident in the team and then and then uh recognize that you're gonna have to sweat the details like it's not hard. it's not uh, in in principle a b testing is easy to understand but after a few failed tests that really piss you off you realize you have to sweat the details to get the test yeah. up front and uh yeah, we've done a lot of tests that we just fell over. Like this test that we ran recently, and it's a bit embarrassing actually. We launched a we launched a new feature that was we were meant to have a holdout group of ten thousand, and and uh, our marketing team didn't get the message and sent the invite email to all of our customers, and and so the the holdout group was blown, and the the launch was subsequently like we had to our data team were having to figure out how to retroactively figure out whether it worked or not. Yeah. So sweating the details, especially when it's a multi-team effort like that, it, it's hard work. And, and so it, it doesn't matter. And it's especially important to sweat the details when the benefits or the negative effects of something might take one, three or six months to play out. So for instance, if you're going to change something that you think is going to drive an immediate near-term benefit and you have a suspicion it might have a delayed six-month impact, 
it's all the more reason to kind of get the data sorted out up front, get your holdout group set up up front, for instance. Yeah. The other thing I do is, would just say is to um, just, just like we did together, start with the optimizing the existing funnels. There's normally lots of low hanging fruit there. So if you can design a program of work and bolt it on side with an agency to kind of bootstrap the capability like New, New Republic, for instance, and, and while you start to build the data capabilities into the team so that you can start um, testing deep hypotheses and you know that's a good way of going normally any funnel that is untested i mean i remember saying to you when 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 i first joined it zip it was like uh it was just a party like it didn't matter what i didn't matter what i looked at everything was unoptimized like, yeah. which which which, <laughs> which funnel am i gonna optimize first? So where do i start yeah totally. yeah most, most companies most most mature companies they've already kind of optimized most you know well, you, you I, I think see. that, Pat, there's still a lot of companies who still haven't got into here. And, and some of the stuff you're saying, I think we're both super excited by because it's that it really clearly communicates the next evolution. What's really yeah. obvious is that, you know, you've got that stewardship that allows them to, that allow the team to progress really quickly. And I think that's what's lacking in the market. Now, listen, we're running out of time. I want to ask you a really quick question before having to sign off. You obviously mentor your product teams yes where do you go for your mentoring like how all this stuff that you've been talking about i know you've got years of experience but where do you go to find that inspiration around what to do and what's next that you need to be on the top uh, forefront of like what are you reading what are you listening to you know what's the thing that drives your thinking right now well so i some great friends at other tech companies, Steen Anderson, one of my close friends at, at Lassie, and uh, he and I talk a lot about about these kinds of problems, and we share we share thoughts a lot. So I have relationships with like like minded heads of product and um, chief product officers in in other markets who I spend quite a bit of time with. Um, there's some great material on Substack as well, like people who are willing to turn this into their job. Uh, Lenny's Lenny's newsletter is just amazing. For instance, he talks a lot about how to build marketplaces and and um, he's built this whole community of product managers as well. So I find at the moment for me right now, that's very exciting as well. And uh, I'm trying really hard at the moment to move the product space beyond the craft into business. The craft of product is a little bit obsessed with um, customer first. And I've noticed in most companies, there's a disconnect between the product team and, and the leadership team. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm trying really hard to bridge that gap on the leadership side, teaching them the craft and on the, on the product side, teaching them how to be business people. Yeah. And so that's an area I'm exploring quite passionately right now. We'll come back in 12 months. We feel like the way you've, you've explored experimentation, you'll probably have nailed it in 12 months. So have to get you back on board to tell us how you've transitioned that bridge we'll see thank you mate i just want to take the time i think yeah. i don't know about you thank you no it's been a great chat 100 percent, really exciting just some of the stuff you've said just I, i'm absolutely blown away really really loved it so pat thanks for the time stace thanks for the time and uh, to all those listening like always you've been listening to the growth haven podcast for uh, i'm your speaker and co-host of the Growth Hacking Podcast from New Republic. If you have any comments, please leave your, grab our email address at the bottom of the Spotify or whatever your podcast of choice is and give us an email if you have any questions. Pat, thanks again. Appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks, Nima. Thanks, Stacey. Appreciate it. Great to chat.